All right, well, would you say that you are a pessimist or an optimist, an optimist rather? I'm sure you already know how you would answer that question, but just in case, some, some questions designed to, to test you out. You run up to the stoplight. It turns yellow as you approach. Do you speed through or slam on the brakes? Some would say the optimist speeds through, the pessimist slams on the brakes. Or how about this one? You overhear your name in a, in a group of people you know, you don't know what they're talking about, so what's your first thought? They're saying something good about you or something bad? Or similarly, your friend sends you a message saying they need to talk to you right away. You have no idea what it's about. Do you assume it's, it's good news or bad news? As you know, the pessimist tends to perceive such situations negatively, assuming the worst while the optimist believes the best. So, for example, you get that unexpected knock at the door and... The optimist is excited, wondering, you know, who could be here visiting? While the pessimist goes on lockdown and treats it as a threat. Of course, the original scenario for distinguishing the pessimist and the optimist is the age-old question, is the glass half empty or half full? And so how how would you answer it? How how do you see things? Are you naturally the optimist, the happy-go-lucky person where nothing seems to get you down? You put a positive spin on everything? Or are you naturally a pessimist who tends to think the sky is falling? You see the worst in every situation, as if you're always waiting for something to go wrong. These titles may be simplifications, but most people, they do generally line up under one of these two sides. Of the two, which is better? Well, I think we'd like to believe that the optimist is better. We Saying positive is a good thing, right? Of course, if you're a pessimist, though, you probably hate optimists because they're so annoyingly naive, you you think. But biblically speaking, though, the pessimist has some real trouble, as if they didn't have enough already. What I mean, though, is biblically speaking, there's no room for the pessimist. In other words, we're not given a license to be pessimists in Scripture. Instead, as Christians, we're actually called to be perpetual optimists in Christ. Just think about some of these truths in Scripture. God is sovereign, supreme, in control of all things. He's also good and loving, cares for you, working out all things for your good. He has, he's proven his concern for you and sending his son Christ to die for you, to redeem you, to justify you, to adopt you. He is sanctifying you. He will glorify you. And so much more, you're so richly blessed in Christ And so when you have an Eeyore Christian, biblically speaking, it's telling you something's wrong with their thinking. They're they're missing something. And it's a good way to describe the perpetual pessimist like an Eeyore. They're always seeing the worst in every situation, forgetting what they have. But Scripture calls us to always see the best. And even when bad things happen, we now are able to see God's plan unfolding. And so that's why in Scripture we're told to worry about nothing, to be anxious for nothing. That's extremely hard for the pessimist to do. I mean, worrying, that's their MO when things go wrong. And likewise, as we learned last week, we're told to complain about nothing. This is also extremely difficult for the pessimist. It goes against the grain because complaining is like their knee-jerk reaction when things don't go according to plan. And on the flip side, we're told to instead rejoice in everything, at all times, give thanks and to rejoice in the Lord. 
So you can see we're, we're essentially commanded to be optimists in Scripture, to always look on the bright side, spiritually seeking or speaking. And, and for those who are in Christ, there always is a bright side. When, when you think about it, no matter what happens to you in this life, you always have reason to rejoice if you know Christ. You could lose all your money, all your health, all your relationships. You may endure real bad things, real suffering. But if you're in Christ, you still have eternal life. So eternally speaking, nothing to worry about, nothing to complain about. You are infinitely blessed. God is working all things out for his glory. You're good, right? I mean, you believe that, right? He's working it all out for his glory and your good. I think many Christians believe that intellectually, but it's extremely difficult for the pessimistic person to accept. Something in them just wants to believe the worst. So when they get sick, even though it's flu season, they think God must be angry at them. Or they lose their job. They don't even bother praying about it or asking for prayer. They think the situation is just hopeless. This is the person who thinks they're never good enough for God. But this is a real problem because you can see there's just no room for such an attitude in the Christian life. It goes against our life, our mission. We always have an occasion to rejoice because when Christ has come, he's died for us. As we sang it, it is well with our soul. And we always have reason to live and to serve him. But pessimism, if you go down that road, where does it lead? To apathy, to giving up, to giving in, things which we cannot afford. And so we have to train ourselves with the truth to always take joy in the Lord that we might always serve the Lord and offer up our lives as that living sacrifice in joy. And it's a lesson we're going to learn this morning from our passage in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there now to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18. Many of you know Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. It's a major theme in these four short chapters. And just in chapters 1 and 2, so far Paul has said a lot about this theme of joy. He started in chapter 1, verse 4, rejoicing over the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel with him. He also rejoiced in chapter 1, verse 18, in the progress of of the gospel, despite his circumstances. As you know well by now, Paul was writing this in prison in Rome, but he didn't even let that get him down. He still was rejoicing. He was the prime optimist, seeing the the silver lining and everything, how God was even furthering the gospel through his imprisonment. So in that, he rejoiced. And Paul will continue to rejoice, he says back in verse 18, knowing that he will be delivered by Christ, whether in this life or the next, and he will not be put to shame in anything in Christ. And so it's all good. And likewise, Paul wants to see the Philippians share in this joy, he says in 125, and he's going to continue to minister to that end. He wants the Philippians to grow in their faith and their joy, and that will in turn will only give him more joy, he says in chapter 2, verse 2. So he's going he's gonna to press on despite circumstances. And so you can see already in these two short chapters so far, he's already said a lot about the, the topic of joy. He's going to say a lot more in chapters 3 and 4. 
But what you may have noticed so far, Paul has only really talked about his own joy. So far, he's only mentioned his own personal joy and rejoicing. But that changes in our passage for today, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where for the first time in Philippians, joy comes in the form of a command. Paul, in this passage, again mentions his own personal joy, which he shares with them. But, but this, this time he calls on them to reciprocate, telling them to rejoice. They likewise need to rejoice in the Lord. This call, this command even, to rejoice in the Lord, is going to be repeated in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but it starts right here in the middle of chapter 2. And we're going to see it this morning. In fact, why don't we read now this little passage, Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now this is a very historically situated text. What I mean is that it, it pertains directly to Paul and his personal relationship with the Philippians. And the problem about with that is, well, Paul is dead and the Philippians are long gone. So you look at a passage like this and many others and, and ask, what does this have to do with us 2,000 years later? Well, as you know, God chose to deliver his word in a historical context The timeless truths of Scripture stand out, and that's what we're after. But you can you can't uncover these timeless timeless truths of Scripture rightly unless you first understand Scripture in that original historical context. And this little passage for today is a perfect example of that. You might be tempted to just jump right into these two verses and and cherry pick them and, and you know turn them into some moral lesson, convenient moral lesson, but if you do that, you, you really miss the nuance of, of the apostles' instructions here, the intent behind what he's saying. And that's not something we aim to do. It's not actually a generic call to rejoice in this passage. It's a more specific call to rejoice. There, there's something here for us. There is something we need to learn from the Apostle Paul's instructions to these Philippians 2,000 years ago. But to get to that, we need to rightly get back into that historical context and and understand what it meant then to understand what it means for us today. And so we're going to spend a little extra time this morning doing just that, going back into Philippians by way of review. So first, you have to realize that these two verses, which, by the way, these end that first major section in Philippians, they go together with verses 14 through 16. And so really, this is like a a part two from last week. But look back there one more time, Philippians 2. Look at verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And then, of course, comes verses 17 and 18. And and these verses all go together and form a a final little passage in Paul's 
first main exhortation in the book of Philippians. And again, we'll point out what is this first main section all about. It's all about unity. Although it may not look that way at first, that's, that's really what he's getting at. We'll, we'll track back a little bit further here. Flippin' Church, you might remember, they were, they were a good church. They were a healthy church. But some forces were at work that were starting to pull them apart. And that's bad news because a, a divided church is a weak church and an ineffective church. If you were to take a rope and start fraying it and pulling it apart, it would just get weaker and weaker and eventually it would, it would snap. Well, Paul was starting to see this church fraying and so he's writing to confront them, but in a loving way. It's like, have you ever had friends going through some marital strife and you wanted, just, you wanted to say something? You felt like you should say something. Maybe both husband and wife were good friends of yours. And you see them headed in the wrong direction, so you, you feel like you want to step in a little bit, tell them to, you know, knock it off, come together. Stop arguing about all these meaningless things. Stop complaining about one another. Be thankful for all that you have in your relationship. You just want to like lovingly shake some sense into them. Well, that's, that's basically what Paul is doing in Philippians. It's a friendly letter. There's no strong rebukes here. They're his friends. They're his gospel partners. But he's learned of some strife in the church and so he's writing to lovingly just shake some sense into them, to tell them to you know, knock it off and, and to come together. I said, I said before, some forces were pulling them apart. What forces? Well, some internal, some external. Internally, their own personal conflicts and divisions were separating them. As we said before, at issue in the Philippian church was not heresy, they were not dividing over the deity of Christ or salvation by faith. They, they were an orthodox church with right doctrine. Paul delivers no theological rebuke in, in all of Philippians. Instead, though, personal preferences were the issue. People in the church were simply not living together in harmony. They, they weren't getting along because these personal divisions were, were becoming way bigger than they were supposed to be. But this, too, is a problem because Christian living, the Christian witness, it's not a solo sport. It's a team sport, and it only works when, when believers work together. It's like trying to move a refrigerator up 20 stairs. You have no hope of doing that alone. You're going to need help to accomplish that, but if all the people are just doing their own thing and not working together, it still won't get done. Nothing will be accomplished. And likewise, gospel ministry effectively comes to a halt when Christians, they're not working together. They're not living in harmony. So the, this internal strife of the Philippians carries greater implications. Their witness and the advance of the gospel in their town were at stake here. So in the first major thrust of the short letter, Paul, he's basically telling them, just, you know, knock it off and, and get along, come together. I know we've read this verse several times. We'll read it one more time because it, it really sets the scene. It's the opening verse in this first exhortation, chapter 1, verse 27. After all of his introductory matters, which we've covered, comes the first command in Philippians 1.27 where he says, again, he says, only conduct yourselves 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You'll see here that the theme is clear of, of coming together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not long after this, Paul says a lot more about their unity. You remember chapter 2, verse 2. You can look there. He goes on to tell them, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or personal or uh, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So, as chapter 2 begins, it's you can see it's all about this, this concept of unity, which comes through humble, selfless, sacrificial service. If you are the opposite if you're not humble, but proud. You're not selfless, but selfish. You're not, you're not a giver, but a taker. Well, you're going to be alone, and you're not going to have unity and, and oneness with the body of Christ. But that's not our calling. We are called to be of one mind with the body. Therefore, the, this call to put on humility. And after this, Paul continues this thrust by pointing them to the greatest example of this humble, selfless, sacrificial service, which is Christ. Remember, verses 5 through 11, that the great example of Christ and his sacrifice, he came for us. He humbled himself first for us, even to the point of death on the cross, and we are to follow his lead. Again, the Philippian church, they were a good bunch it's just that they, like all of us, had some blind spots, and Paul was, was pointing them out. They needed to just knock it off, come together, and, and excel still more. And that explains the next passage, verses 12 and 13 in chapter 2. After pointing to Christ, he, he comes back to them, and he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we covered, these are very significant verses, but also in a sense, very simple. Again, it's a friendly admonition. They are his beloved. He loves them. And also, they are obedient. They have a track record of obeying the Lord. But they still need to continue to strive to work out their salvation. They need to keep growing in Christ-likeness. And keep in mind that this command to work out their salvation, it still comes in the context of, of unity through humility. So the prime area of obedience they need to grow in is, is this unity through humility. It's not easy. Because we, we are sinners and, and we are selfish and that divides us from one another. But he encourages them that, look, God's grace is greater. God's power is sufficient. 
which is already working in you, both to will and to work. So you have what you need. Just get to work now. Just strive toward this unity through humility. And Paul's not quite finished, though. He almost is before he jumps back to some more personal update. But he's going to get a little more specific with these friendly reminders for the Philippians. And this now explains verse 14, which comes right after that. Or we learned last week, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, or alternatively, without complaining or arguing. Do you know why Paul said that? Probably because the Philippians were grumbling and disputing, right? I mean, Epaphroditus, most likely, he reported to Paul in prison, hey, the Philippian church, they're doing great. Things are going pretty good. You know, everyone's doing okay. But, you know, they're starting to complain a lot more. And there are, there's some div- division going on. People are disputing and arguing more. It's like in any relationship, there, there's that honeymoon period where you see one another through those rose-colored glasses and you see no faults, no imperfections. But as time goes on, the, the glasses wear off and you see all the faults and all the d- differences. And in our sin, in our flesh, that will lead to complaining and, and d- disputing. But that sin that kills unity, be it in a relationship or in a local church. But they, the Philippians, like us, no different, need to knock it off. Just just knock it off. In reality, we have nothing to complain about being given so much in Christ. There's no place for grumbling against one another. Instead, as we learned last week, you've got to learn from the negative example of Israel in the wilderness. All they did was complain about their circumstances and, and they met they were met with nothing but God's discipline of his children. But we're called to a higher way, and at stake is our own personal holiness, our own personal witness. And so Paul tells them all this. Remember, verse fourteen, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why? Verse fifteen, he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. He's telling them, you need to put on a heart of humility, put off all this complaining and bickering. Why? Well, because the world is watching. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The world lives in darkness. We're called to be lights. Our mission is to let the light shine in the darkness, but when you live like the darkness, your light doesn't shine. You you, you blend right in. You're no different. And so you can see here how Paul is is linking back their behavior to their, their gospel mission, which is what he started with at the beginning, thankful for their partnership in the gospel. But you see what's at stake now. Their their ministry, their 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 mission as a local church, same as ours, to let that light shine is at stake with all of this internal strife and bickering. Paul rejoiced in chapter 1 over their partner, uh, partnership and participation in the gospel through their giving, through their efforts. They they were doing a good job. They were witnessing Christ. They were letting the name of Christ be known. 
but the effectiveness of their mission is at stake if they persist with the complaining and disputing, grumbling and arguing. Paul, he wants to keep rejoicing over them. He wants to keep bragging about the Philippians. Like, look at that church. They're they're a God-honoring church. But they they need to knock it off because they they run a real risk here of, of going the other direction. To Paul, this is personal. You see that at the very end of verse 16 where he says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul, he has a personal reason why he wants them to get their act together and to come together. It's so that his own personal labor over them as an apostle will not be in vain. Paul looks forward here to the day of Christ when the Lord Jesus will will judge all believers, not in respect to salvation, but in respect to how they live their lives. And Paul wants to boast on that day, displaying to his master Jesus how he took his talents and multiplied them pointing to the Philippians as fruit of his gospel labor. But if they let their divisions continue, that their small cracks will become bigger cracks and bigger. The chasm will form and the church will, will sink. They will divide. They will implode. They will split. All of which, in a sense, will make Paul's labor over them to be in vain. Now, he doesn't want that. And that's why he's trying to, in this letter, address all these little cracks before they get any bigger. That applies for any relationship, but certainly for a local church. And we have at our house a a fiberglass shower. And whoever installed it didn't do a very good job because the floor underneath is not perfectly level. And so there's like a weak spot in there. And so a crack formed after just stepping on it. And it started just a little hairline crack thought nothing of it. The crack grew over time and grew and grew and water started seeping in and the water the water further eroded the underlayment, making it worse and gets bigger and bigger. And pretty soon you're dealing with like a huge gaping crack slash hole in your shower. Pretty significant problem, which should have addressed at when you first noticed it. When I, when I first noticed a hairline crack, so easy to have addressed it. But so it goes for all cracks of division and strife, be it in a marriage or a friendship or a local church. And so you can see now for for several reasons, Paul wants the Philippians to to come together, to put aside their differences, which they're not theological, just personal, and to come together for the sake of themselves, for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of their witness. Now we can finally get to verses 17 and 18. And yes, that was all just introduction. But I don't often do that. I did that on purpose, though. For one, it's just a good example of jumping into a text. But I want to show you that there's no such thing as, as a text without a context. And, and context matters. And also, each week, as we're going through Philippians, I mean, let's face it, we go pretty slow, verse by verse by verse. It's very easy to lose sight of, of the big picture. Because this is just one letter. It was meant to be read to them at once. And there's a lot of profit in here and going slow. But like an artist, if you're just focusing in on one little corner of your painting, it's good to just step, step back and remember, like, what's, what's the actual picture? And this is, since this passage ends that first section, it's a good opportunity to do that. But now we're, we're squared away and we can make perfect sense of what Paul is saying in these two verses here.
and how it applies to us. So let's do that now. Look again at verse 17. After telling them to, to stop grumbling, stop complaining, he says, verse 17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. At the end of verse 16, you remember, Paul made things personal, and now he continues on with that personal sentiment. He pictures himself as a drink offering being poured out, here Paul is evoking sacrificial imagery, which, have been, uh, which would have been very familiar to Jews and Greeks. Animals and sacrifices, they were slain and then placed on, on a flaming altar to be a, a burnt offering. But oftentimes to complete the offering, they would pour a drink offering on top and, and the water or the wine would evaporate. The steam would, would rise up, pictured as if a, a pleasing aroma to, to God. So in this verse, Paul pictures himself as that drink offering. But that drink offering was always a supplemental offering. The main offering was the animal on the altar. So in this metaphor, if Paul is the drink offering, what is the primary offering? Well, he says it's the Philippians, specifically the sacrificial service of their faith. So Paul and the Philippians, they're together pictured as complementary offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. Their very lives are being sacrificed to God, offered up in service to him. It's just like Paul wrote elsewhere, Romans 12.1, where he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul and the Philippians, they were both living out that verse, albeit in in different ways. Paul was the goer. The Philippians were the senders. Paul was the guy taking the gospel from town to town. And the Philippians, they faithfully gave and supported him financially so that he could do that. And in their own lives, they were letting the gospel of Christ be known all the while suffering for his name's sake. Indeed, part of Paul and the Philippians' mutual sacrifice involved their suffering for the sake of following Christ. Paul himself, I mean, he's writing this from prison. He's, he's definitely suffering the effects of following Christ. And even the Philippians, they were starting to be persecuted more for being these new Christians. And the heat was being turned up and they were starting to suffer. Don't forget what Paul said back in chapter 1. Remember, it starts in verse 27, but right after that, right after that opening admonition, he says in verse 28, he tells them to be in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. To the Philippians, they were suffering even the same conflict they saw Paul go through. They had their own issues to to face. I said before, there were two forces working to pull the Philippians apart, one internal, one external. I only mentioned the internal one, but this is the external force, persecution. 
those around them that, that hated the light were, were, were bearing in, turning up the heat. And that, that's another great adversity the church must overcome. They were being persecuted for the faith and they needed to stand firm against this threat as well. So bringing this up by evoking this imagery of their sacrifice, Paul writes now to, to finish off this section to encourage them. And that's what he's doing in verse 17. If you're wondering, you know, how do you make sense of chapter 2, verse 17? Well, the point is, he's trying to encourage them in their faith. He, he said some serious things to them. Stop complaining. Stop, stop arguing. Don't let my labor over you be in vain. It, it can seem kind of harsh. Like, what are you trying to say, Paul? That the Philippians are a bunch of lazy complainers and that you regret all that you've done for them? Well, no, that's not at all what he's trying to say. And and lest his admonitions be taken too harshly, he encourages them right after in verse 17. Although they do need to be exhorted to obey God without complaining. He encourages them that they are doing a good job and they are serving the Lord faithfully. They are living out their lives in sacrificial service. Paul's labor over them has not been in vain. He knows that, and so he encourages them. Instead, he views his labor as a drink offering, which, when added to the sacrificial service of their faith, completes it to the glory of God. And so he, he rejoices. Lest it be interpreted too negatively, he lets them know, like, I'm still proud of you guys, and I thank God for you. I rejoice over the sacrificial service of your faith. They've got some issues, but he still takes great joy and their sincere faith and gospel partnership. And he wants to let them know that. He wants to let them know that their, their, their labor is worthy. And his labor has not been in vain. But they both are, are sacrifices to the Lord together. And so he rejoices. And this, in turn, leads Paul to transition from his own personal rejoicing over, over them into finally an admonition. Now he calls on them to likewise rejoice and so we finally get verse 18 where he says to finish off this section you too i urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me see the philippians they needed to hear that in reality that they were serving the lord they did love the lord but some things had gotten in their way They allowed some of their personal differences to divide them, which hindered their gospel witness. And at the same time, external persecutions were ramping up, making everything harder. And in response, some of them were were turning negative. They, They were getting sour. They were becoming pessimists, where instead of rejoicing in the Lord, they responded to all these forces, internal, external. They responded by by complaining arguing, dividing. And so they needed to be reminded to rejoice. Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. I mean, even if we lose our lives, we still have eternal life in Christ. And if if you're in Christ, that should be enough to cause you to rejoice no matter what happens. It it sounds hard, but if, if that's really true, you really believe your eternal life is secure in Christ through faith, and you will be with him for eternity, what do you really have to worry about? Dying? 
That's just graduation. So the Philippians needed to be reminded to get back to their first love, to Christ, to delight in Him, to take joy in Him. These truths, the truths of the gospel, give them every reason to, to, to delight, to take joy, to rejoice in every circumstance, even the bad circumstances, to see the positive. And so that's what they needed to do, to rejoice and share their joy. And now to transition, it's not all that different for us. You know, putting this all together now, we can see how the lesson for us comes into sharper focus. We are not the Philippian church. We do not live in the same historical circumstance that they lived in. But I bet you can see now how, how the timeless truth stands out from this text. For all local churches throughout all the ages face the same threats internal and external, pressures pulling them apart, temptations to respond negatively, to to turn negative and to see things negatively, which will take you down. Conflict with others inside and outside the church can easily sour you to the Lord and the things of the Lord. You can become bitter, even resentful over the things of the Lord. You become a complainer a disputer, one who always sees the worst in other people. But turning negative or pessimistic like that, especially toward your brothers and sisters in the faith, it starts you in a downward spiral. You start by seeing others negatively. It leads you to complain and argue when when things come up. That breeds division. That division diminishes your joy which makes you even more negative. And so you complain and argue even more, and, and down it goes, just that downward spiral. And at the bottom is division from the church, division from one another, both of which effectively smother your gospel witness. I mean, why should the world believe in Christ when his own people can't even get along? So you see, much is at stake here, and the lesson still applies. We likewise need to hear the call to work out our salvation, particularly in the area of unity through humility. Being one body in love, it's it's essential to living out the gospel and holding out the gospel. And to achieve that unity, the same thing holds. You have to put off this grumbling and complaining and put on thanksgiving and rejoicing. To be honest, it's all quite basic stuff. It's really Christian living one-on-one, but we too need these reminders all the time. For we, like the Philippians, we're just as prone to revert to our old ways. So now just consider your own lives, your own service, your own relationships within the church. Have you become that pessimist? Have you turned negative? Are you now a complainer, a disputer, as we learned last week? And if so, do you see how these these negative attitudes work against the church's unity and therefore the church's mission? These attitudes must be absent from all that we do. That's not enough. They have to be replaced by thanksgiving and rejoicing in all that we do. So, for example, take your service to the Lord. How are you serving? I mean, you are serving, right? 
But are you doing it with a happy heart? Maybe you volunteer once a month in children's ministry here at the church. And at a small church, that means you have to miss the main service once a month. And at first you were okay with that, but now it's starting to wear on you and you're tired of missing. And Maybe someone gets sick and you've got to miss now two weeks in a row and it's just starting to bother you. That other person seems kind of flaky, so you find yourself grumbling against them. Thankfully, I actually haven't heard of, of such complaining here, I'm, I'm thankful to say, but I think we all know it, it could happen so easily to any of us. Instead, though, serve the Lord with joy. Whatever you do to serve, if it's folding chairs or, or, or giving your time, your money, let your offerings come from a happy heart. Let it satisfy you simply just to follow Christ's example, to humbly, sacrificially give of yourself to build up others in love. And with such offerings, the Lord is well pleased. Also consider your relationships. Has strife or personal conflict entered into any of your relationships, especially with your fellow Christians? Again, we're not talking about doctrinal division, but personal differences. And if so, put them aside. Stop yourself from seeing the worst in others and believing the worst about others when you take the, the mole hills of your personal differences and turn them into mountains. Well, then you're going to complain and argue and grumble and dispute. Conflict will arise, division will result, and your joy will be diminished. But instead, again, put off these attitudes and try putting on thankfulness for others. And here's a convicting thought. Think about some person you may have had some personal conflict with in the past or in the present. And how much time and energy did you spend complaining about that person or even arguing with that person? And now ask, how much time and energy did you spend praying for that person? That's convicting, right? I think to all of us. I mean, even if you're truly, you're truly in the right, they're truly in the wrong, still, pray for them. Pray that God would be gracious with them, that God would humble them, that God would humble you, that you would resolve your differences and come together for the gospel. I would safely bet if you spent more time praying for those you struggle with, not only would you complain less about them, but the sources of your division would start to just vanish because as you see others through the lens of Christ, not through the lens of your own selfish interests, but the, through the lens of Christ, these petty differences, they just don't matter that much anymore. These are your, your fellow brothers and sisters, those for whom Christ died. You've been given so much grace. Just try showing some grace to others. The Lord has covered your offenses in love. Why don't you do the same? I know it sounds radical, but you can even try and find ways to thank God for such people. Remember, Paul always rejoiced and gave thanks for all the churches, even the ones who caused him a lot of grief. Because at the end of the day, they're still on the same team. So remember what side you're on and remember who the real enemy is. And don't let the evil one divide you. Instead of complaining and arguing, find ways to rejoice and give thanks, even in your difficult relationships, and watch God bring you together. Finally, consider your circumstances. This one, look, it can be hard because 
Bad things happen. Real bad things happen. Sickness comes, suffering comes, persecution comes. But we're still called to grumble and complain about nothing, but rejoice and give thanks in everything. We're not happy when bad things, ha- when bad things happen, but we still find joy in the Lord, in the things of the Lord. And that's really the lesson which we've learned several times already in Philippians. If, you, if your joy is found in the Lord, well, then you, you can never lose your joy because you, you don't ever lose the Lord. But if you've attached your joy, your, your comfort, your purpose and, and peace in life to money or health or family or your kids or your house, well, as soon as those things go, and they will go, so goes your joy and your peace and your comfort and so forth. But you must instead seek Christ, follow Christ, pursue Christ, make him your life's treasure, which is what discipleship is all about. He, he will satisfy you. He's enough to satisfy your soul. And that's the only way Christians are able to rise above terrible circumstances yet still have joy and peace. Who can still say, it is well with my soul. Because we're, we're possessed, we're purchased by an even greater God who, who cares for us. If you know Christ, you always have reason to rejoice. You have the greatest reason, eternal life. So, so rejoice. Same thing, rejoice and share your joy. Remember these things. Have the right attitude in your own service, your own relationships, your own circumstances. And as you are filled with the joy of the Lord, no matter what happens, you will be, instead of, instead of putting a lamp over your light, you'll be putting a, a magnifying glass over your light. Nothing gets the attention of the world so much that when believers who have every worldly reason to be depressed, still rejoice. The world cannot comprehend that. But that is your grandest opportunity to let the light of Christ shine and show the hope, the reason for the hope that you have within you. It, it's nothing here. It's just Christ. I just I have Christ. And that's all, but that's enough. You might have a lot going on in life right now, some, some real hardship. But realize we're just not given permission to be pessimists. Rather, like the Apostle Paul, we must always carry on with great optimism, setting our mind on things above from whom we wait, from which we wait, eagerly wait a Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord, as he'll say in Philippians 3. And even like our Lord Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, even Christ endured the cross, setting his mind on, on the joy ahead. And we must do the same. Find your joy in the Lord and the things of the Lord. And instead of sharing strife with one another, share that joy with one another. And you will find your lives and the lives of those around you to be an acceptable offering to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name this morning for the hope that you've given us, the hope in Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who spared us from, from eternal destruction, which we admit we deserve because of our sin. Yet the good news is that Christ has come, 
The penalty for sins has been paid. In him, new life and eternal life were found. And Lord, as we have believed and you have saved us, we, we now have that, an inheritance reserved in heaven, imperishable, undefiled. And we await that, Lord. And I pray we can set our minds on, on such things, that as we are heavenly-minded citizens, it keeps us from, from grumbling and complaining about things here on earth. We, we have nothing to truly worry about. We're in your hands. You do care for us. You are in control, and you are good, working it out for our good. Let us fix our thoughts on these things. And through these thoughts, Lord, be, be positive to see the best in you and in others and keeping division and strife away. We must replace these thoughts of, of, of anger and disputing and, and contention with thanksgiving and, and re- rejoicing. We have so much to be thankful for. And so may these, these thoughts fill our minds instead, Lord. When we walk as one in your church, we are both an effective witness and we're a pleasing sacrifice. So I pray that our entire church, our entire little local assembly can be one offering, pleasing to you, offered up on the, the sacrificial service of our faith. It's all from you, Lord. It's all for you, for your glory and for your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.